You're listening to the teaching ministry of Harvest Fellowship Church in Boyertown, Pennsylvania. You can find out more about us on the web at www.harvestfellowshipchurch.org. We pray that through our teaching, we may present everyone mature in Christ. Father in heaven, we bow before you now as we are gathered together to study your word. We pray, Lord, that as we look at the the pages of Scripture, that we would be reminded time and time again that these are your holy words, your inspired words, your eternal words that are meant for our good, brimming with infinite wisdom. And as we study on a concentrated text tonight, O Lord, we do pray, Spirit of God, that you will um, give to us, impart to us the right kind of wisdom transformative wisdom that will result in in greater godliness and holiness in our lives. So help us now, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. This is typical. I'd like to give a short recap of what we studied last week, which I think is morphing more into quiz the audience to see how well they were paying attention, or at least took notes. Uh, So last week we covered Acts chapter 9, verses 19 through 35. Remember we saw the result? Two weeks ago we saw um, encountering, a saving encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And last week we looked at the result of what happens when someone savingly encounters Jesus. And we saw Saul is now a drastically changed man. And how quickly, or, or how long I should say, did he wait to preach in the synagogues. Yeah, it was an immediate preaching. And what did he preach? That Jesus is the Son of God. It was a very specific statement that we don't find very often in the New Testament. Well, the people who heard him preach were astonished. How could it be that this same man that we were told is coming here to to kill and destroy the Christians is now proclaiming the same message that they believe in. And so over time, as Saul continued to increase in his strength in Jesus Christ and to, and to proclaim even better gospel messages, they said, you know what, we've had enough. We're going to kill him. But of course, this murderous plot became known to him. And so his disciples, um, under the cover of night, how did they get him to safety? What kind of basket? A laundry basket. (laughs) We didn't say say exactly what kind, but I did compare it to the baskets that were used to to gather the extra food after the feeding of the 5,000 plus. But Saul did not run and hide. Where did he go next? Jerusalem. The place of probably the greatest danger to him. And there, the Christians refused to accept him. They were afraid of him. They did not believe in his conversion. And so, um, what happened then? Uh, We see that Barnabas, uh, the son of encouragement, comes along and he believes Saul's conversion story. And so, he brings him before the apostles. He explains everything that's happened in Saul's life. And from that point on, Saul is accepted, but... And, and Ron, you can't answer this, but how long was Saul in Jerusalem? Fifteen days, or we could just say two weeks. And the reason that he was there for such a short time is because there was already a second plot to murder him, and this time it was coming from the Hellenists, the same people that Stephen had debated, and Saul drew their ire as well. And so Saul is sent away. Eventually he ends up at his hometown, Tarsus, And and so then after that, the church actually experiences a reprieve from God, from persecution. So there's there's a peace, and they walked in a true fear of God. They were comforted by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. And so the church, again, grows. It grows in size, and it also grows in maturity, spiritual maturity. And then we see this abrupt transition. All of a sudden, Saul's out of the picture, and now we are switching back to whom? Peter. And Peter, um, we're going to 
we, we were looking at two different miracle stories. We saw the, the first one last week. And so um, who is the man that Peter meets in Lydda? Aeneas. And what was his challenging condition that he faced in life? How long? Eight years. He's paralyzed. But Peter tells him, he says, Jesus Christ is healing you this very moment. And he says, you haven't heard this in a while, but get up and make your bed. And so he did. And he proved uh, through that that Jesus had completely healed him. And the residents there of Lydda and Sharon, which was a pretty wide area, they were so moved by this event, provoked in their hearts by the Holy Spirit of God, that many of them turned from their heathen ways to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that brings us then to chapter 9, verse 36. And so I'm now going to read, if you have your Bibles, we we are going to span the end of Acts chapter 9 and go into chapter 10. And so I'll begin at Acts chapter 9, verse 36, and read through chapter 10, verse 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping, and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter, He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. May the Lord write the eternal truths of his word to our hearts on this Wednesday night. As we reached our 22nd teaching in the Acts according to the Apostles, or the Acts of the Apostles, we see two different parts of the narrative here. First, we see from death to life, and then we're going to see this, this question that's not going to be answered tonight but because this is such a long narrative, but what about the Gentiles? What about the Gentiles? So there's two questions I would like for you to, to think about as we work our way through the text tonight. The first question is this. What does it look like to wholly give ourselves over to Christ, to his kingdom, and to his church? What does that look like? I think we're going to see a picture of that. And secondly, this is more of your, again, your longer-term question to think about. What happens when two distinctly different cultures collide, and they're colliding because of the gospel? So those are the two um, thoughts that I'd like for you to linger 
on in your minds. Also, just as a reminder, we have the uh, the prayer request or, or praise cards on the tables, and I, I was able to put a few in the back as well. So if you have um, anything, please um, write it down, uh, since you have roughly 50 minutes or so to, to write it down before we collect them at the end. But let's now jump to verse 36, chapter 9, verse 36. So we're, we're sort of resuming what was going on last week. Remember, we see Peter, he's in Lydda, and he's, he's made this um, miracle. Well, he hasn't made the miracle. Jesus has through him. But Aeneas, this man, is miraculously raised from his paralysis. And then Luke says there's another thing going on. So in verse 36, he says, Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas, she was full of good works and acts of charity. And so we're introduced to a new place yet again, and it's, it's Joppa. But it's not really new to us because if we've read our Bibles, uh, we've heard of this place before. This is a, a seaport city. It's on the Philistine coast, and this is about 35 miles northwest of Jerusalem. It's still around today. It's called Jaffa, J-A-F-F-A. But if you think back to when King Solomon is building the temple, you'll see in 2 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 16, remember he's bringing in all that cedar down from Lebanon. Where is it coming through? It's coming through Joppa. Now, probably more in your mind than maybe you didn't remember that. Of course, you would probably remember that this is the same seaport where Jonah... The, the disobedient prophet gets on a boat to flee from the mission that God had called him to. And that's in Jonah 1 verse 3. But Joppa was the main port for Jerusalem and really for all of Judea. And, and it's about 10 miles northwest of Lydda. So remember, Peter's down in Lydda. And this is about 10 miles northwest of Lydda. And if we go back to chapter 8... We, we can't say this conclusively, but it certainly seems to be probable that, that how did the good news reach Joppa? Probably by the, the labors of Philip the Evangelist, from what you can see in Acts chapter 8, verse 40. And then one other thing to sort of consider, just from a historical standpoint, because remember, um, it's not immediately, you know, Luke doesn't write this as it's happening. It's, it's, it's written a little bit later, and so... What happened in Joppa later is that it became a center of Jewish revolt, you know, sort of like we saw a revolt happen in Jerusalem around AD 70. That didn't end well. Well, neither did the Jewish revolt in Joppa, and a lot of Jewish um, people there were just straight up slaughtered. But that wasn't yet, and so Luke is relaying that in Joppa, in this place, it's about 10 miles from Lydda, he, he wants to point out a specific disciple, and he, he gives her name Tabitha. Tabitha is there. She's a professing believer. Now, Tabitha is her Aramaic name, and, but she also has this, this Greek name, uh, Dorcas, and both of them essentially mean the same thing, which is gazelle, possibly antelope or deer, but gazelle is probably the best-fitting uh, definition of her name. Now, if you were to go back to Song of Solomon, you'll see in, in, two, in chapter 2, verse 9, and also chapter 8, verse 14, that gazelle is used there as a metaphor for the word beloved. And I'm sure that as, even as we read through this passage, and as we're going to study it a little bit more tonight, you can see that Tabitha is quite a beloved member of her community. And Luke gives us a little bit of the reasons why. And so he says that she, uh, Tabitha, was full of, or we could say she was rich in good works or good deeds. And so this, this very devout female disciple of Jesus, how does she demonstrate her love for Jesus? How does she... Um, show her her faith in Christ, her love for God. It is by a continual, this isn't she did things for one year. No, this is a continual doing of good to others and for others. And so she's full of good works and also acts of, of charity. So 
these acts of charity are going to be acts of, of financial kindness. It certainly seems that she was a woman of, of means, and so she's performing all these acts of, of financial kindness, or maybe you're thinking of the simple word alms. We talked about alms giving all the way back in, in Matthew chapter 6. But as we go back to Matthew chapter 6 in our minds, and you remember sort of what those three chapters that, that sermon was about, it, it's, it's what does a kingdom disciple look like, right? And here we find this woman, Tabitha, and she's embodying those commands. She's embodying those commands from the Sermon on the Mount. And also, thinking of the words of Paul in Galatians 6, 9, she did not grow weary of doing good. Remember, Paul says that do not grow weary. Hey, I'm tired of doing good for other people. I'm just going to go do something else for a while. That wasn't her mindset. She continued to do good in her community. And that sort of, I think, is set up by Luke because it makes the events then of verse 37 all the more shocking. And where he says, in those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And so at some point, as she's faithfully ministering in her community, what happens? She gets this debilitating illness. Luke doesn't tell us what it was, but she dies. The result of her illness, her sickness, disease, is that she dies. And to have such an indispensable pillar of the community to, to die in such a way, surely this was a great shock to the community, and surely it also brought great grief to the community as well. And so what do they do? They, it says that they washed her, which is kind of interesting. I think we have to be careful not to read too much into what's going on here, but we shouldn't ignore things either. It doesn't say that they anoint her body, but they do wash it. So I, I'm just going to suggest to you that I don't think that they fully prepare her body for burial. It's certainly following some of the practices. So the washing was certainly a, a preparatory step by the family to prepare a body for burial. But they don't anoint it. Remember how, how Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they immediately anoint the body of Jesus. So they're not anointing her body, and they lay her here in an upper room. And we're not quite sure if that was a typical thing or an atypical thing. But I think there is a possibility here that this is an this is an atypical type of action here where, where there's an act of faith by these people who are anticipating that God is going to do something. A body was normally buried before sundown on the day of death, and that does not seem to happen here. Luke doesn't explain why, but we do see that they take further action in the next two verses. So in verse 38, it says, Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. And so Luke says... Oh, what a coincidence. Lydda is pretty close to Joppa, and it just so happens that Peter is in Lydda right now. Now, Lydda is, is, is essentially a three-hour walk away. So, you know, you got your... It, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 8 to 12 miles, but it's about a three-hour a three walk. And so when these disciples here in Joppa, when they hear of um, the news... That, that Peter's there, and perhaps they also then hear the news that Peter has, has raised up Aeneas from his paralysis, they send two men to him. So two men go, two messengers, and, and there's this sending for Peter. Now they know, these people know um, also what a pillar Peter is in the overall Christian community, and so their sending for him, I think, also reflects the significance of, of Tabitha's significance in the Christian community as well. And we could even ask the question, 
Does Tabitha not mean just as much to Jesus as even Peter himself does? And of course, the answer is, is yes. And so these men go and they urge, so they, they urge Peter. This isn't a, hey, Peter, could you please possibly come with us if you're not too busy? No, this is an urging. And, and, and I'm sure even these messengers could not control or contain their own grief, knowing that, that, that Dorcas was now dead. And so they explain the circumstances of her death to him, and, and their request here is not, hey, Peter, we're going to be holding a funeral service for her. It really would be great if you would officiate over it. That's not their request. And so what happens? Peter doesn't hesitate to go. He doesn't wait. He, he leaves with them. And, and for those men, I think this is, this is an implication a little bit more to men who are in leadership, that there's times to, to preach the gospel. There's times to preach the word, but there's also times to help people in need. So Peter could have said, no, hey, hey, back in chapter 6, we decided that we're just going to give ourselves over to prayer and the ministry of the word. So maybe you could go down to Jerusalem and find, find a deacon. No, he goes immediately. He doesn't, he doesn't find this to be beneath him in the least bit. And so what happens? He arrives and they immediately take him to this upper room. They, they usher him there where, where um, Tabitha's body had been laid. And what's going on there? A lot of weeping, great expressions of, of sorrow. And who are the people who are weeping the most? It says all the widows. So there was all these widows in this town of Joppa, and they're expressing their grief. And one of the ways that they express their grief is that they're, they're showing Peter. They're showing, hey, look at these, these tunics, these other garments that she made for us. And, and, and perhaps maybe that, that reminds you of some of the studies that we did in Matthew. We talked about how a lot of times people had, had one change of clothing for life. And, 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 and to lose that or to have it taken from you would really be a terrible thing. So on the flip side, for someone to make you something was really a wonderful thing, a, a tremendous gesture of charity. And so these widows clearly were dependent upon Tabitha for help. And it is also not um, outside the realm of possibility that Tabitha herself was a widow. But this display of the clothing, it really seems... Um, from the text here, that they're not just holding them up, but I think it's probably more likely that they're actually wearing what they're showing to Peter. Look at this article of clothing that this wonderful woman made for me as they're, they're crying their eyes out. And what do we find then in this, um, this description of Tabitha? It's that this is a clear example that anyone in the Christian community can care for people who are in great need, especially the widows and the orphans. So even though there is that official commissioning back in chapter 6, we saw that for the, for the seven, that it's not exclusively to them, is it? And so is that not an example to us as well? You could see someone in need and you could say, you know what, I'll tell Travis. I'll tell one of the deacons, then they can go help that person. Well, what's preventing you from going and helping that person? Um, they have their official responsibility, you could say, and, and that, that uh, accountability before God, but we all do in a certain sense as well. Paul says, bear one another's burdens, not take them to somebody else. He says, if you have the ability to do it, if you have the, the desire in your heart because you love God, go do it yourself. And she really took this upon herself. And she did it clearly for a vast number of people. And so there is a great expression of sorrow here. And so what does Peter do? Peter puts them all outside. Peter put them all outside and he knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented 
her alive. And so there's this, this is not necessarily quite the same expelling that Jesus did. Remember when Jesus shows up in, in a very similar situation for Jairus' daughter, there's a lot of scorners there. There's a lot of mockers. He's like, you know what? All the mockers will go outside. So even though Peter puts them all outside here, there's no mocking going on. These are just people grieving. But I would have to think that the events of that day of Jesus and Jairus' daughter were, were probably on Peter's mind. So that occurs in Luke chapter 8. Or maybe even another scenario, which we don't think about quite as often, but back in Luke 7, there's this, there's this widow woman, and she, her, her only son dies. It's in the town of Nain. And Jesus comes along and he says, hey, could you stop that funeral procession? And he proceeded to, to bring that man back from the dead and restore, her, or restore him to his mother. Or perhaps, very vividly in his mind, would have been the resurrection of Lazarus. Lazarus come forth in, in John chapter 11. All of those things Peter had been there for. Remember, Peter was one of the few disciples that Jesus kept in the room when he spoke to that young 12-year-old girl. And so do we see any fear here of Peter of, of saying, ah, this is kind of a, a ritually impure situation. I can't be around dead bodies. No, we don't see that. And so what does he do, though? He gets down on his knees and he prays. He demonstrates his submission to God, his complete dependence upon God, so he cries out to him in petition. And so there's this big shift because when we see Jesus doing miracles, we, and then we would often see him making some sort of divine claim. At times we would see people worshiping him. And so the 12 they have been commissioned as ambassadors, but they don't just have this internal ability where they can just do things because they're not God. And so he has to call upon God. I don't even know what you want me to do here. Direct me. And so he, how am I going to respond here? And if you want me to heal this woman, please give me the ability. Pour forth the, the power through me to be able to do this. So he prays. This is very much like um, an example that we have in the Old Testament. So in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 32 and 33, we find that scenario of where the, the young boy had died. Remember, there was that, that woman. She was barren. Elisha tells her, you're going to have a baby. And then later, the son, he complains of the, the pain in his head, and he dies. And she says, is this, is this why God gave me a son, so that he could die? And so it says that Elisha came into the house. He saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. He prayed to the Lord, the great prophet Elisha. And here Peter is doing the same thing. So once he's done praying, once he's received the direction from the Lord, he turns to the body. He turns to the, the dead body of this woman laying there, and he said, Tabitha, arise. And of course, he's going to use her Aramaic name. He's not going to use her Greek name. But he uses her name Tabitha as he calls her under the power of Jesus back from, from, from death unto life. Now, Mark chapter 5, verse 41 also records that story of, of Jairus' daughter. And there, it, Jesus says, Talitha Kumai, which I think Mark gives the translation, which I think is um, young girl arise, some, something like that. And here, Peter, his statement is technically, it's only different by one letter. So Jesus says, Talitha Kumai, and Peter says, Tabetha Kumai. Only the, the, the L and the B are differing there. And of course, it's the same word. That, that arise, it's that same word that, that Peter used that I mentioned last week in the healing of Aeneas. It's that same word that's associated with the resurrection of Jesus, which is pointing people back to the fact that this is not Peter's power. This is the resurrected, exalted Lord's power of resurrection. And therefore, her eyes are opened. Her life is restored. And going back to the Elisha example, 
um, after he stretches himself upon the child, it says the child sneezed seven times, but the same thing, the child opened his eyes. Tabitha opens her eyes. Saul, after he was on his way to Damascus, his eyes were open. Remember that spiritual picture as well, from darkness to light. And so when she saw Peter, whom she probably had never seen before in her life, she sits up. And this is a a demonstration that her life has returned to her. So she sits up, and he offers her hand. He He helps her to stand up. And now that she's standing up, this is, we could say, a foolproof of her aliveness. And she's not back to the point of being sick. No, she's been fully restored to a vibrancy of life. A full healing. But I had thought as I was reading through this, you know, typically we're thinking of of the focus of of Tabitha, and I think rightly so to a certain extent, of how she was dead, now she's alive. Uh, But consider also Peter's experience here. You know, Peter has not done this before. He has not (laughs) raised someone from the dead. So think about the awe and the joy that may have been overwhelming his soul in that moment. He's, he's just prayed to the Lord, and now through the power of Christ, this dead woman is alive. What an amazing thing to think about, that he's thinking about, that this is the ways that God is using me. And surely, of course, he may even have times reflected on his great betrayal of Christ. And he goes from weeping bitterly And now God's using him to to raise this woman from the dead. And so after she's raised to her feet, it says, calling the saints and the widow. So there's everyone who's been put outside are are now re-summoned. And it's kind of an interesting phrase there that that he says, that Luke says the saints and the widows. So I, I don't necessarily think that he's saying So we had all the saved people, but all the widows were unsaved. I don't think that's necessarily what he's saying. I'm going to give you two options. I don't typically give you options, but I'm going to give you two to think about. One could could be in that he is distinguishing and the widows, that he is noting a group of widows that are unbelievers, but that were also ministered to by Tabitha. So that's one possibility. Or he is especially singling out the widows from the saints to say, hey, these are the group of people within the Christian community who benefited from her the most, who were the most dependent upon her and probably were the most joyous, if it's possible to have degrees of joy when you see somebody raised from the dead. But they may have been the most joyous to see her, as it says, he presented her alive. She's alive. And, of course, this was to showcase the resurrection power of Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself did this all the way back in your mind, or you can quick look in Acts chapter 1, verse 3. It says, he presented himself alive to them. He didn't need someone else to present him. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. But this is the first instance here in Acts of someone being raised from the dead. And and surely uh, one of the themes or one of the ideas that we can pull from that is that Tabitha's work of service, her kingdom work, it wasn't done yet. Sure seemed like it, but her laboring for Christ was not yet over. I guess the only other, I guess the unfortunate part is she was going to have to die a second time, but so did Lazarus and so did anyone else outside of Jesus who was raised up. But every time that we encounter a resurrection story, as much as we can and should marvel at at what Jesus has done, it really should also then drive our minds to think about um, the exact verses that Pastor Barry preached on Sunday from Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, that when we were dead, when we were laying in that upper room, completely dead in our trespasses and our sins, says that God made us alive together with Christ, raised us up with him. It's as if he took us by the hand and raised us up. And it says, and seated us with him 
in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Wonderful picture also of union with Christ. And so it was then that in God's providence, that this one woman that we didn't even know about until we reached verse 36, this one woman in this town of Joppa who is known to her friends for her love and for her kindness in the community, that she becomes the means then. God uses her death and resurrection as the means by which many people are brought into the kingdom. Very little is written about her. We're not going to see anything more written about her, but what we do know is that Tabitha was a remarkable woman. She selflessly gave of herself to kingdom work. And ladies, I would, I would give to you this great exhortation that this is a worthy example in Scripture to emulate, to model your lives after. James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And surely, that was the thrust of Tabitha's life. And what's the result? In verse 42, it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. This, this, this resurrection miracle, it's as if it spreads like wildfire and how could it not? Um, and so the, the result is the same as when Aeneas is raised up from his paralysis, um, that, that many people turn from their heathen pagan ways to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so both we have two miracles then that attest to and bear witness to Jesus' resurrection power. But then Luke begins a new section, so to speak. So he's, he's continuing some overall themes because Peter is still the central character here. Um, but there's a new section. And it is going to suddenly shift gears a little bit here uh, with Peter because in verse 43, um, it, it seems to sort of just carry along. But, but now he is staying in Joppa. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a. Tanner. So he's probably there for a year or more. And where does he stay? This is not just something where um, Luke says, well, in case people want to play miscellaneous Bible trivia later, we'll, we'll just let people know that this was the profession of the man he stayed with. No, there's, there is significance to everything that is in the word of God. And so he stays at a specific house, and he wasn't intentionally necessarily looking for a guy with the same name, um, but he stays with a tanner, a leather tanner. And so I will refer to him as that being his last name. So I'm just going to call him Simon Tanner. That's how a lot of last names came around. But tanning was this, this making of leather by tanning animal skins, and it was something in Jerusalem that was very despised. They did not think like, hey, what do you do? I'm a tanner. If, if for most Jews, they would have said, you disgust me. Get away from me. Uh, some tanners were suspected of immorality because women also worked in this trade. There was a general distaste for the trade because of the terrible smell involved with working with animal carcasses. And there was also concerns about ritual purity with the tanners because of this contact that they had with dead bodies on a regular basis. You can look back to Leviticus 11. And so quite frequently, tanners were ostracized, and they, they were required to live 50 cubits outside of the town. We don't want you inside of our town. You've got to be 50 cubits outside. And so this is where Peter goes, or we should say this is where Peter is led by the Lord to go. And I think as he goes there, there's this very, very slow work of the Lord in Peter's heart. And I say slow because we're going to see next week in this vision that the Lord gives him the same vision three times and he protests all three times. Um, and, and, and the point of that isn't necessarily to say that Peter was this very obstinate man. I think what it's going to, and we're going to draw this out more next week, it's just going to show us how unfathomable it was for Jews and Gentiles to integrate together in any form, shape, or way. 
But nevertheless, the Lord is beginning to do something in Peter's heart because he is going to use Peter to cross what would be called an uncrossable divide with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so here he is in the house of Simon Tanner. And while he's there, suddenly then Luke is going to talk about another man. And he says at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. So here's the new person, Cornelius. And But before we talk about Cornelius, I do want to just mention a little bit about this place, Caesarea. Because it is, we have to distinguish it. You've probably heard Pastor Barry mention several times, I think he even did on a sermon on Sunday, about being in Caesarea Philippi. This is not Caesarea Philippi. This is Caesarea Maritima. This was a major seaport city about 60 miles northwest of, of Jerusalem. You can almost think of this place as a competitor of Joppa. And I'll tell you why in a second. But this place contained a majority Gentile population, and there was a good amount of friction between the minority Jewish population there and your larger Gentile community. In fact, the the Jews, they disparagingly referred to Caesarea as the daughter of Edom. That was how they called this place. They said, that's the daughter of Edom. But why was it a competing place with Joppa? It all had to do with the very ingenious work of Herod the Great. So Herod the Great took this place, Caesarea, which really was a destroyed place, but he saw value in it, and he created, this is probably pretty difficult for us to conceive, but he created the first artificial harbor in the ancient world. And it's really, and if you get a chance to just go read about that, all the things that they did to create an artificial harbor without the, you know, the, the machines and things we have today, it really is a phenomenal thing. So that's what he did, and of course, when you create something like that at a strategic location, it's going to create a lot of commerce, and that's probably why the Jews hated it so much. But he named the city after Caesar Augustus, so that's where that Caesarea comes in, because Augustus was emperor at the time that this harbor was created there. Um, And remember, this is also the place where Philip eventually ended up going again back to Acts chapter 8, verse 40. He preached the gospel everywhere until he reached Caesarea. And so that's Philip somewhere around here as well. But now back to Cornelius. So Cornelius is a centurion. A centurion commands how many soldiers? A hundred, or roughly a hundred. It could be anywhere between 80 to 100. And everywhere we go throughout Scripture, they're not mentioned a lot, but centurions always seem to be presented very favorably in Scripture, which is kind of an interesting thing to think about. And this is the case here as well. If you remember back when Jesus encountered that centurion, remember that remarkable faith he had? He said, I have not found faith like this anywhere in Israel. You can read about that in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. But centurions were probably close to the equivalent of a modern-day army captain. So think of those sort of ranks but they were the backbone of the Roman army. And so he's, he's part of this Italian cohort, and you can read about that in, in, in your history as well. A cohort had 600 men. It was one-tenth of a legion. I'm going to quiz you on all that next week, just so you know. But more importantly um, is the fact that he is described as a, a very pious, godly reverent man. And it says that he feared God with all of his household. So this is a man who would have been expected to worship uh, the Roman gods, but instead of that, he's cast them aside and he's embraced the Hebrew God and he has a fear of him. But not quite to the point of what we would say of, of repenting unto life. But he had, in fact, embraced the one true God of Israel we could say, is the object of his devotion. Um, and so Gentiles who worshipped God, the God of the Hebrews in this way, were often called God-fearers. And so there probably would have been some level of attachment here from Cornelius to a synagogue. His, his sympathies are with their theology. 
with their ethics, but not quite to the point of where he would have become a full-fledged Jewish proselyte. A lot of these people who were God-fearers and they began to, to worship the God of the Hebrews, they were called near proselytes, or even sometimes they were called proselyte of the gate. It's as if they came right up to the gate of the Hebrew faith, but they said, but I'm not going to come inside. I like most of what you're doing, but I'm not going to walk through that door. And quite often, because of them not being full-fledged proselytes, that means they were also uncircumcised. And in fact, circumcision itself was one of the greatest, greatest deterrents. Would you like to be a proselyte? Yes. Well, you're going to have to be circumcised. No, thank you. And so that was probably the greatest deterrent to people becoming full-fledged um, Jew Jewish converts. And so because of that, then, how would the Jews perceive him? Even as great as he was, they would have said he's unclean. But notice it says he feared God with all his household. And so his household would include his wife. It would include his children, other close relatives who were living with him. It would also include his slaves and also their children as well. And that will factor in prominently um, to when Ron teaches in two weeks to talk about what are the implications of that? What does household mean? What's a household conversion? How does that factor into baptism? Things like that. No pressure, Ron. But I'm, I'm not going to mention any of that. But notice here, you know, this is a man with great responsibilities. I think we can infer, though, from this verse of, of fearing God with his whole household that Cornelius was not a man who neglected his family. It was very important to him, and so he leads his family, which we just said was a, a more extended group than just, say, four or five people, and he's leading them, in this, in, and, and he's pointing them to the same God that he is, is, is interested in, we could say. And not only does he, he worship him or fear him, but he's also very generous with the community. And this would have been specifically within the Jewish community. And that's a kind of a remarkable thing. The, the Romans were not known for being generous to the Jews. They weren't known for being kind to the Jews. They didn't have to be. And they were always on guard for things like crushing Jewish uprisings. And so this is really a remarkable thing. But then also, Luke says that he prayed continually to God. So he followed this Jewish practice of praying to God three times a day. We see Daniel doing that as well. But it seems like here, and we're going to know this once we get all the way to chapter 11, it seems that he is praying to God for guidance about salvation. Now, Luke doesn't share that here, but we're going to see that. So if you really want to get the full thrust of the story, and I was doing it again this morning, reading chapters 9 all the way through the end of 11 really helps you to get more of the full import of the story. Nevertheless, uh, the centurion here, Cornelius, he, it seems that he's probably been in Caesarea for a while. He may even have been a retired um, centurion by now. He has a home, he has a family, and he's been there long enough to accumulate quite a reputation as a generous um, person in the Jewish community. But then, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius... So just on, on this certain day, Cornelius has this visionary experience. It says the ninth hour. What time is the ninth hour? 3 p.m. Just want to make sure there. 3 p.m. This was a set time for Jewish prayers. Remember, you can go back to chapter 3, verse 1, and you see that same mention. And so he's on his knees, you could say, praying in broad daylight. So it's not a night vision. This is, a, this is in the middle of the day, and he sees clearly, or we could say he sees distinctly in a vision, something from God, and that is an angel of God who comes towards him, and he speaks to him by name, Cornelius. Well, as probably most people who have never seen an angel of the Lord before, it says that he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended 
as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. So Cornelius, I think we can safely conclude, is pretty awestruck by this moment. I don't know that he's necessarily quaking with fear. I think because of what he's been praying to God for here, he is, he's just overcome with awe at this, this angelic being who, who represents the divine before him. And so he's staring intently at this angel, and he gives very much, I would say, a reverential type of reply. So this is more of saying, hello, sir. But it's also less than saying, I know that you represent Jesus. So that when he says, Lord, this is not a Christological address here by, by Cornelius. This is just some sort of, of worshipful acclaim, we could say. But he doesn't have a firm idea of who he's speaking to. And the angel says to him that your, alm, your prayers and your alms have, have ascended, or we could say have risen as a memorial or, or perhaps an oblation, as if it were incense or the smoke of a sacrifice in the sight of God. In a certain sense, you could say your prayers and your kindness to the poor have not gone in vain. But essentially here, God is receiving Cornelius' prayer and his giving, we could say, as an acceptable offering um, from this Gentile man. And how has this um, Gentile man responded so far? I think we can say that he's responded according to the light of revelation that he has received to this point. We see that same principle come out in Romans about how general revelation should, it often doesn't, but it should drive someone to seek out that being or that, that God who clearly is superintending all the things that are revealed to them in general revelation. So he has only responded here according to the amount of revelation that he has received. Is any of it specific revelation? Not yet. But God is still, um, he's, he's acknowledging, hey, I've seen this, Cornelius, and he doesn't say it explicitly here, but God's now going to give him that full revelation of Jesus Christ. That's going to come. But this is very interesting that, that there's this sense of God treating the prayers and the alms of a Gentile as equivalent to the sacrifice of a Jew at the temple, because remember, that's something that Cornelius would have been barred from. If he showed up at Jerusalem, they would have said, hey, there's the outer court. There's the third court. That's the only place you can stand in. But God, in a certain sense, accepts that. So we have to ask the question, and that's why I say it's good to read chapters 9 through 11, because you really get the full import. Is Cornelius already in the kingdom at this point? And the answer is no. Because you could start to think, well, he prayed to God. He did all these great things. Maybe this is God just confirming, hey, Cornelius, you're saved. No, Cornelius is not in the kingdom yet. But we could say in a spiritual sense that he's closer or just as close to the kingdom as all the Jewish leaders, all the Jews in Jerusalem who are continually offering sacrifices and keeping these traditions. But what is necessary for this man, for this very devout man? It's that he needs to hear the words by which he must be saved. To hear the gospel, you have to hear it proclaimed and God's mission with the gospel, remember when Jesus sends them out in Acts chapter 1, who does he say will be his messengers? Does he say it will be an angel and angels will come down and preach the gospel? No. He says, you, you, well, there was really 11 that he spoke to. He says, you men are going to be my ambassadors. It's going to be, it's going to be humans taking the gospel to the world. And so Cornelius needed to hear the words of the gospel, and that applies to us as well. Every single one of us, even the most devout, need to hear the gospel to respond to. But here it's a little bit abbreviated, so the angel tells him, hey, send some men to Joppa. It's about 30 miles 
um, south of Caesarea. So that's the distance between Caesarea and Joppa. And you're going to be looking for a, a house owned by a Simon, but there's going to be another Simon there, and that's the Simon you want. You want Simon with the surname of Peter. And that's quite a thing, too, because ultimately, what's the ask? This is going to be an ask of a Gentile to a Jew saying, will you please come to my house? Unthinkable. And so, um, but he tells him, he says, he's at this house of Simon Tanner, whose house is by the sea. And and I think in a certain sense, this, this mention of where he's at, that Peter is residing with the Tanner would have been an encouragement to Cornelius because he knows that he may not be dealing with um, someone who is um, a hater of Gentiles. And this divine command to send for Peter, we know as we study this passage, is very theologically significant. Gentile inclusion into the family of God, it's not going to come without, we could say, without Jerusalem's involvement, without the apostles being part of that initiative. Remember, these are the 12 men that Christ has given the keys of the kingdom. And who's the leader of of those um, who are carrying, so to speak, the keys of the kingdom? It's Peter. Peter is that rock, and he he is, in a certain sense, leading the apostolic band. And these keys were already used before. In a, in a, of course, we're speaking figuratively here. But when Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and the people believe, it's as, if, it's as if the key was turned that day. The keys of the kingdom to the Jews on the day of the Pente- on Pentecost. And also, when Peter and John go up to Samaria, we talked about the, Samarian, the Samaritan Pentecost. It's the same thing. And so Peter... Um, is going to come to Cornelius, just as Peter and John went to Samaria, and not Cornelius going to him. And so the final um, two verses, the angel who had spoke to him had departed. He called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So the angel immediately leaves And when the angel immediately leaves, Cornelius immediately obeys. And how much does he share with these three men, the two trusted servants and this devout soldier who possibly was just as pious and godly as he was? Everything. He doesn't hold anything back. He doesn't say, hey, I'm the boss here. You just do what you're told. He shares everything with them. And so he sends these three men to Joppa on a very specific mission. And that's where we... We cut off the narrative. We'd love to go on, uh, but we're going to pick that up in verse 9 next week. So next week, I will be covering verses 9 through 24. Does that sound right, Ron? Where are you picking up at? Do you know? Oh, okay. Through 33, 9 through 33. So that's that's the goal for next week. But as we consider this as a larger narrative, just as remember when we did Stephen's speech, we were covering a few weeks, as we think of this larger narrative, I just want to ask you a few questions, and these are rhetorical questions, to put into your mind to think about. Did Luke's thorough description of Cornelius' piety and the angel's words to him mean that Cornelius had earned God's favor? So I want you to think about that question. Is that what the angel's intending here? That God is impressed with you? You've, you've earned God's favor? Did Cornelius deserve the grace of God? And clearly the grace of God is being extended in this narrative. And then, of course, we should ask ourselves the same question. Do any of us deserve the grace of God? I know you all know the answers to those questions already, but those are things that that we should keep in our mind uh, as we walk through narratives. And especially as we walk through a narrative, sometimes where we see something, and, and maybe there's part of you that wants to believe, well, it really seems like Cornelius is a believer already. So just keep reading, and, and especially um, think about this idea 
uh, as Paul also talks about in Romans, about how the gospel needs to be declared. How shall they hear unless someone goes forth and preaches the gospel to them? And so if you ever hear people talk about how they were saved without the gospel, that really should raise red flags in your mind. And to bring everything back into the whole of Scripture and how do we see salvation occurring according to Scripture. And now, Lord, as we go our way tonight, as we fellowship with one another, I pray, Lord, that as as we think of this wonderful example of Tabitha, that we would think of how we can continually do good works within our own community, outside of our community, not um, growing tired of doing good, but loving our Savior ever the more so and doing good one to another. Pray for your blessing to be upon us as we go our way and that you would bring us again into joyful gathered worship on Sunday. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.